And I think on that stage is also important that I try to include my stakeholders as much as possible in the test. If it's a usability testing, they at least observe the session. Sometimes they even ask to do one of the sessions as moderators. I really welcome it. It's very important to give your stakeholders an opportunity to ask the questions and be involved as much as possible in your research. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Hello, and welcome to Writers in Tech, a podcast brought to you by the UX Writing Hub. Today, I have a very special guest. She lives in Berlin. She works as a UX researcher and UX writer. She's now a doctor, and her name is Natalia Arana. How are you, Natalia? I'm great. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me. I'm, I've been listening to your podcast since, I think, day one. So it's really exciting to be here. Oh, nice. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, and I forgot, of course, to say that you're also a mentor for the UX Writing Academy, which is also cool. Yeah, exactly. Really enjoying this. Oh, really? How is that experience is like? It's amazing how much you yourself learn when you try to help others, especially those who have maybe a bit less experience than you and they have a different view on some copy. It's been amazing. I'm happy to hear. Yes, I agree. Also, as a mentor, I learned a lot from my students and I was also a mentor for design classes and it was really a lot of fun. So I'm happy you're enjoying it. And so you did a PhD lately. So what was that PhD about? Yes. So my PhD was about, well, on paper, it's about Russian literature of 19th century, but it was more like comparative literature. So it was Russian, German and British of a specific period, the 19th century. So very literary studies. <laughs> nice. Do you feel like this research helped you with your work as a UX researcher? Definitely. I mean, in terms of just doing academic research, that helped me a lot to understand what is a classical research process, but also understanding that classical research process doesn't always fit into agile environment. And in that sense, it's quite different UX research to academic research, but the way you your process on working on a problem, I think it still stays the same. It doesn't matter if it's academic research or user research. Okay, so I have a really interesting thing I want to know here, which is what is the difference between a UX research and academic research? I guess the most basic difference is that you don't have so much time. You know, academic research can take up to four years. In my case, it was around four years and user research should happen within one or two sprints. So I think this is the basic difference. And I think you get to test more in user research and get real feedback, which is different, well, at least from my academic research, because my academic research was mostly sitting in archives and digging up really strange novels from 1840s. But I guess natural science research is a bit closer to user research in terms of you have a hypothesis and you need to test it and you need to protocol your testing and repeat it and iterate and document everything you do. So in that sense, natural science research is more user research than what I did. Yeah. All right. So I love that. So basically the, the amount of time that you have less time to do stuff like yeah. PhD, you have like, you know, the whole year maybe to do your thesis work. And in tech environment, you work in sprints, agile, this needs to be happening like yesterday and uh, you need exactly. to run fast. 
And also, I think what is important is stakeholder management, which is not something you think about, I think, when you do academic research, but I think it's an important part of user research is how you communicate your findings, how you manage and present your work to your stakeholders. This is completely different or even not present in um, academic research. How to work on the UX of your, basically, research findings. Exactly, yeah. How to make so, it understandable to anyone. Amazing. All right, so before we dive in, into more like practical examples about research and writing, so Flixbus, I know what Flixbus is when I used to travel all over Europe by bus. So what exactly is Flixbus, Flixbus to the listeners that don't know? Yes, so Flixbus and Flixtrain, these are the core products of our company. And, you know, our vision is smart and green mobility for everyone to experience the world. So we are set to bring you the best possible booking experience for the smartest and best prices. And we want to do it green. And now we offer bus travel as well as train travel. Train travel is more in Europe, uh, but bus travel is also, I think, getting more known to our US customers as well as you in the UK. So we want you to travel the world and do it in an affordable and eco-friendly way. Nice. And also the branding is green. Nice. To be honest, I was blown away when I was like going from Prague to Berlin to Budapest to yeah. Krakow. So I used Flixbus every time. It was very affordable to me at the time. You know, I was on a budget and it was really cool. Like I had Wi-Fi in the bus. I had really nice seats that I could like take back and sleep. Yeah. And I could even like buy candies or like there was stops the right time. There was even like bathroom in the bus. That was pretty yeah. cool. So Flixbus is a, a brand that I have a lot of like uh, feelings towards too. So that's good. It helped me a lot. Yeah, I do all my travels in Europe also with Flixtrain and Flixbus. So I'm also a very, a very seasoned user of our products. It's good. It's good to test your own products. Exactly. All right. So we're, we were talking about like looking on data, looking on research findings and make it accessible for stakeholders in your team. So uh, can you give me like practical examples? If you can give me even examples that are relevant to the writing of the interface, that would be even mm -hmm. better. But when was the last time or the most crucial time that you kind of made or, or like when you had a re realization of like, okay, now I need to make this data accessible so everyone could understand and we could start working on it. Mm, okay. Um, I, think it's, I think it's very important to start uh, by saying that I document everything I do. So I am not, I work not in, in a product team, I am a part of a centralized UX team. So it used to be UX research, but now with me, we call it just UX team. And we believe in documenting everything. It, of course, takes time, but this is just what we do. Because one UX inside, one user inside not documented is the user inside lost. So... I start documenting any project that I work on from the very beginning, from the kickoff meeting, from so this meeting where I just meet with stakeholders who asked me for their help. And I already have a list of questions listed and we just type our answers or I type it after the meeting. So I document every step and after 
any test is done, I have a template, a report template that I just use to document what I found, how I did, what did I do and how did I do, what are the benchmarks or what was before and what happened after. So without that, I think not only me, but everyone in the company would be lost because we do a lot of stuff every week, every day. And I cannot be the one, the only person who has this knowledge in my head on of how our users speak or what they want to hear and what happens if I go away like for a vacation or something. So then there is no one with this knowledge, but if it's documented somewhere, anyone can go there. This repository of findings, it's accessible to everyone um, in the company. So everyone knows what I did and they can check at any time. They don't even need to contact me for that. So uh, on what tool do you use to document it and how do you make that data accessible to the people like how does it structured so we use our like internal tool that looks like notion basically yeah it's called confluence i'm I'm sure you know this so it's basically a text document and we have a template where there is where you input your methodology your hypothesis your met who participated in that test the participants and also your stakeholders then you have a template where you just put an input your insights so you observed that it was observed i observed it by checking with five users and four out of five, they experienced this. And then I describe it and I put in video or a quote or just a screenshot sometimes. And I also give my recommendation directed, uh, connected to, to this finding. And then I just put it on Confluence and I call it a report and it's for everyone to see. All right. So let me give a little bit more information for the listeners that are listening right now. So Confluence is a tool by Atlassian, which means that Atlassian have, a, have like their tool Jira that is like a product management tool, project management tool for product teams. And Confluence is also by Atlassian. So does your Confluence file is connected to the Jira files, which is part of the sprints of the design team yeah. and the development team? Yes, sometimes we do connect them. Not quite often in my work, but designers and developers, they interconnect everything. Yes. All right. And let's say that I'm in your team right now and I'm searching for a piece of data or like past research. So what will be the best way to like, how is the data and the information is organized that it's accessible? Like all of the reports, for example. Yeah, sure. So we have a page that is called User Insights and you have a search bar there. And when you want to search for a specific performance of the specific feature or you just want to search for this feature and what we have on it, you just type the name of the feature and all the previous research comes up. So you like kind of uh, use a tag for specific features and parts of the interface that it was used? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it also mm-hmm. searched just within the text. That's why we actually use Confluence because it searched the text. So you don't need, we used to have presentations, but they were not really searchable. That That's why we switched to Confluence because you, this search bar, it works for text. So if I mentioned in my any of my reports something on this feature, the search will give you this, this report in the search results. I understand because the the confluence uh, could scroll all of the text of your research and just, then you could just pick the the one that is uh, relevant for you through the search. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Going through presentations one by one sounds like uh, too much of a hassle. 
Yes, and it's also not that accessible as Confluence. All right. And if we'll go and we dive into the research report, so what will be the structure of that report if we need to like break it down step by step? So I will start with listing down my stakeholders and also the hypothesis that we had for this test. Which kind of an hypothesis it could be, for example, if we take like a, even a fictional example? Yes. Yeah, so for example, you want to redesign the search bar or the search okay. result mask like how we call it, or searches out page. So your hypothesis might be that by by making the search button more prominent, more users will click on it because it's now much more visible on the website. Okay. Something simple as this, but it could be a lot of different other different hypotheses. Right, and when you have like 100 million users, for example, it could have a huge impact on the product, I assume. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the basic structure for any hypothesis is if something happens, then something else happens because of something. So if, then, and because, this is a basic structure of hypothesis. And then mm -hmm. you test it with different methods. It depends on what are your metrics. All right, so we have this uh, button right now. This is our hypothesis that if it will be... Let's say also that we want to have another text on top of it or something like that. Yes. So that's our hypothesis. And what kind of methodologies we can use in order to do that? So for the button, that would be microcopy. I would suggest in that case, if you are just changing the name of the button to make maybe make it more readable or more understandable, or you think that the text of this button will be in line with the language of your users, so how they speak about this process, and you just change the text on the button, I would suggest to go for A-B tab and have a control version, so the, the original version and the version where you change the text. Uh, the copy, the microcopy, and then you measure the performance of it by uh, running an A-B test. So in nutshell, how many more clicks the, the new button got in comparison with the old button. Mm -hmm. That's an easy one. If you have a lot of users, you can implement it. If you have developers, they could do it for you. Exactly. If you don't have developers, you're probably going to, I don't know, print it and hand it to people and ask like to, like how, how would you do it if you wouldn't have a lot of users? Yeah, so if I had if I had to go for a qualitative research, which is which is research, yes, with not as many users as an A/B testing, I would go for maybe something like five-second test, where I just show it to let's say six to eight, maybe ten people, just show them the design for five seconds. That's why it's called five-second test, mm -hmm. and get their opinion on it. Show them the first version and the new version. I might go for the thing that is called uh, concept testing, which is basically, well, it's the same setup as A-B testing, but it's not on the live product. So concept testing is where you put two concepts before your users and you ask which one they prefer. That could be done by survey tools like SurveyMonkey. Um, and yeah, you can reach your users or your potential users or your key audience by just sending this survey to them, which is something that I also once suggested to one of my uh, mentees to send it out to the friends and check what they prefer, which concept they prefer. So A-B testing is not always the best the best way to test something and you don't always need to, to do A-B test as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, of course not. But for this specific example, it was a good suggestion. Like if you had to change to do micro copy for a button. Okay, yeah. so I want to go from that specific example and say like what other common research methodologies do you use except from the one that you mentioned, which is A-B testing and all of the qualitative methods like the five-second rule? Yeah, so I think one of the methods that I use most is that as a UX researcher, I do a lot of user testing, so usability testing, where we test with five to 10 users, a new version of design, for example, or a prototype that our designers came up with. And this is where I try to include as much as possible the the questions on the text, the copy that they see. And I personally, I find this method to be one of the most efficient because this is where you can ask questions uh, you can ask why and you can talk more about if your if their users answers is um, something that you want to elaborate on so I would go for usability testing most of the time but I also know how much effort lies in actually conducting usability testing and planning usability testing it's a lot of work so sometimes we also do I also sometimes do tests online with a with a research tool that we have in our company and I sometimes go for tests like closed testing where it looks like a language test that our users just put in words that they think they go with the sentence. And then I check if what they put is actually what we wrote. So I check if we are speaking the user's language. I I really like closed testing and it's unmoderated and it's online. So you set it up and you get input without spending as much time on it as usability testing, for example. What tool is that, by the way? Or it's like internal tool or you have something that uh, like everyone can use? Yeah, we work with uh, UserZoom. That's mm-hmm. the company we work with. It's one of the several on the market. There are different ones. User testing. User testing, is. right. Amazing. So you usability test while recruiting people from UserZoom or usertesting.com. So these are the methodologies, right? Mm-hmm. So you start with your hypothesis and then your methodologies. What would be the next step of setting up the research report? So when the hypothesis is set and I am aligned with my stakeholders, I always check for previous research done on the topic in the company and outside of the company as well. So I check our repository if I know, if I can already find out something from our users that has been documented before. I also check the scientific articles sometimes if it makes sense, or I check with other companies and what they shared, what knowledge they shared. Then, yes, then I chose my research method. So I do it only after I actually checked the previous insights to make sure that this is really the right method. And I didn't, I I checked all the uh, knowledge I have. And then I run the test and I record the results in Confluence And I think on that stage is also important that I try to include my stakeholders as much as possible in the test. If it's a usability testing, they at least observe the session. Sometimes they even ask to do one of the sessions as moderators. I really welcome it. It's very important to give your stakeholders an opportunity to ask the questions and be involved as much as possible in your research. So after we also talked about, if it's usability testing, we talked about the sessions, we did some 
brainstorming, which we do in online whiteboard tool. We are aligned on what we found out with the test. I set out to record it in a report. And after I'm done, I always try to get the stakeholders' input into the report. How are we are still are we still on the same page? Is there something that they would like to add that maybe I forgot, or we need to maybe redefine what I wrote? And also, then one of the most important and I think the most difficult parts come is how to. Um, how to share this report with uh, everyone who might be interested in it. And this takes a lot of time because um, sometimes there are findings that I would like another team to hear. And I reach out to them and I set up a meeting, like 30 minute call. And I just tell them, guys, I think people, I think you, you might be interested in what I heard from our users just now. So let's just talk about it. And yes, I always try to make my reports as known as possible in the company so that someone can get an idea from an idea or better perspective on the user problem from what I just discovered. Amazing. All right. And you said that one of the most uh, challenging things is to make those uh, reports accessible to people. I found it also myself like, okay, so we did right now a massive research. The UX Radio Academy, people are practicing UX research and now they're thinking to themselves, how do I make all of this data actionable? Yeah. And how can I take action right now? Is there kind of rule? I know it's like, it varies between different reports, I guess, but is there kind of a method that you found that you can like look on data that you've just figured out, like raw data and create like practical action items from it that eventually you can say, okay, it's worth testing or it's worth implementing Mm. because of uh, A, B, and C. Is there something like that? Differs, of course, from project to project, but... For example, when I'm doing A-B testing, I don't set up it myself in our company. This is not how the process works, but there is always a recommendation based on the data. And for A-B testing, is is in a sense a bit clearer. Uh, if you say, you know, CVR uplift, then it's more understandable for stakeholders. If What's a CVR uplift? Conversion rate. So if... Uh-huh, uh, okay, okay. Yeah, so if people conversed, I really don't know a better word for this. No, like 20% more people clicked that button, for example. That would consider to be better than the last microcopy piece. Yeah, 20% is really huge. Sometimes, you know, know, know. I'm just exaggerating because for that. Yeah, I would love a 20% uplift 20 on on one of my designs. (laughs) There is this famous screenshot from Google I.O. 2017 by Google when they like changed their payment, like the, a booking button to pay now or something like that. And it increased the conversion by 16% yeah. or something like that. So that's a very good percentage. Yeah, but I think also as a UX writer, you need to be prepared that such cool tests, they don't happen a lot, especially if you have a mature product. So I think it's also... Like you need to manage expectations as a UX writer. You will not likely get a lot of tests that have such a huge uplift and that's absolutely normal. What I wanted to mention about qualitative insights is that it's harder to follow up on them, that's for sure. But what I think the best thing that you can do is also is, first of all, to write it as an actionable insight. So when a person from 
some other tech team checks your report and it says the map of our burger joints is not findable for majority of our users, that looks like something you want to take action on. So instead of writing five out of eight people didn't find the map, you transfer it in an actionable insight that other people really want to act on, especially if you are PO for the map feature, you really want to make people find the map more. And it also has a lot to do with alignment with your stakeholders. So I try to take time and really talk to the team that might be interested in this insight and say and discuss with them what are their plans. Maybe we need to do a follow-up research with them, but just by talking to them, I can already see what is actually the action behind this insight for them. And sometimes I rewrite report after that just by including their feedback. So it's all about talking to your stakeholders. I guess there is no easy road to everyone acting up on your insights. It's a lot of just walking around and talking to people and telling mm. what you found out from your right. users. That's uh, some great insights about how to do user research. I learned a lot. Good. <laughs> All right. So we have to finish now. Uh, and I have a question for you. Uh, Natalia, how do you think we should name this episode? I think... The best way to name this episode is how not to be afraid of user research, because I think I got this a bit from my, also from the people I talk to in the, you know, in the community and when I do mentoring, it feels like it's such a scary thing, but it's the most amazing thing in the world. I mean, if you do your research, you know, you talk to your users and you know what they want to hear and how they talk about your product, then it, the writing comes much easier after that. I agree. I believe that really like 90% of the work is the research. And of course, if you're freelancers, so don't say that you're doing research because clients don't like when you tell them that you're going to invest most of, their, <laughs> most of your time in research. But I b- really believe that most of the time should be invested in research. And I agree. There's yeah. nothing like talking to people, understanding how they use your product. It's also a lot of fun to look at data, to gather insights, to write with or design with confidence because data-backed decisions would be always appreciated. And one of my mistakes... Yes, that's a good point. One of my mistakes as a junior was to think that I know everything and to, you know, to design, like as a product designer, to design like stuff that I thought tend to be brilliant and, you know, you had this creative juice in you and then like one day or two days or even one week after your managers talk to with you and say listen this is great but we have so many limitations so we can't do that we can't do that this is legal so no and <laughs> if, if i would just like communicating with people i would definitely spend my time wisely yeah that's true that's true i mean the writing is the easiest part and it comes as the last part before that you just talk to everyone uh, okay and as a hybrid as a do you have like insights from a ux writing slash ux research hybrid there isn't a lot of people like you're like a unicorn now (laughs) well it's interesting to know i I actually uh, didn't know that that yeah, I, I actually haven't met a lot of people who do both, but I think my main, the main thing that I learned from two years of doing both is that, first of all, what I mentioned, just documenting everything and also keeping in touch with 
your project after they're done to measure impact. So I think this is also very important when I talk to someone new who has not done UX writing with me, they want to know the numbers, like you mentioned. It's the easiest way to convince people to do something is to show them the numbers. So I keep a special tab in my private um, confluence space where I track the performance of what I worked on and I call it UX writing impact. And every time I have a new project and I need to make people understand what I do and how can I help them, I just show them the numbers as well as other, uh, I explain my process, of course, but keeping track of impact and having it always handy to show at, the, at any moment that people might doubt what you do, that helped me a lot. And I didn't realize it from the very beginning, but I have a really good team who were always telling me, you need to document how did you make the, the, the product better? How did you make the feature better? Because this is how people will remember to contact you the next time. Nice. All right, Natalia, thank you so much uh, for being here today. If people want to reach out to you, what would be the best place to do it? Definitely LinkedIn. If you are a Russian-speaking person, then I'm also on Telegram, but I guess LinkedIn would be the best. <laughs> hey, you know, Telegram is not only for Russian-speaking people. I'm on Telegram too. Ah, cool. Yeah, I, there are so many channels on Telegram on UX writing in Russian that I have a feeling like although the whole Russian UX writing community is there. Really? That's so, cool. That's yeah. cool. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and everything you taught us today. And also your time as a mentor for the UX Writing Academy. Like I got the feedback from your students and, and it's always like, you know, five stars out of five. So uh, Good to hear. <laughs> so thank you uh, for that. And we're also testing, right? Like we're also iterating the, you know, the feedbacking process and so on. So it's really important for us. Yeah, I really like what you have for the students. I really like the assignments that they have to do and what the decisions they come and uh, like this decision they come up with and the thing that they come to me with. I'm always amazed. I'm like, wow, okay, I would never do it like this, but this is amazing. <laughs> I agree. I understand definitely what you're saying. It took us like two years and a half to craft the course in, in its current structure. And that was a, yeah, it's a, a huge work. highly iterative process. That's the right way. <laughs> As a UX researcher, you, you must agree. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you, Natalia. And thank you, everyone, for being here today for another episode of Writers in Tech, brought to you by the UX Writing Hub. We've just created a new UX Writing and Content Design course for free. So check our website. It's going to be there. Sign up. And that's about it. And Natalia, thank you so much. And I see you on the next episode. Bye.